It's good to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and open it up to the book of Colossians. We'll be in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23 this morning. We're going to read more than that. We'll begin in verse 15. What we're going to hear preached from today, verses 21 through 23, we've just got to hear after hearing from verse 15 forward. If you're just joining us for this series, we are working through the book of Colossians, and we're still sort of at the beginning, approaching the end of the first chapter. Listen to these words from Colossians chapter 1 about Christ and then about his salvation for you and for me. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities or things, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Well, I'm not a mall guy, and Christy is not a mall girl. When we go, it is in and out. In fact, there's a store I'll go to in the mall, and I know exactly how to enter and what turn to make, and uh, it's the shortest distance between the entrance of the mall and the place that I am going. I don't like being trapped, and I don't like being lost. Christy and I both grew up in the Chicago area, and every town in, in that region had its its own mall. My town had a small mall, just small enough that from one entrance you could see the other entrance through it. And so in sixth grade, me and my friend decided on our bikes to ride through the mall uh, as a kind of a prank. And surely before we were even noticed, we would be gone. And of course we were. So small towns would have small malls. But then in 1991, one giant mall blew onto the scene in the Chicagoland area. Gurney Mills, it was called. And I swear it was the largest mall in the world. But I kept Googling around, and I couldn't come up with anything that ever said that. It's at least now the fourth largest mall in Illinois, and there are many larger malls. Maybe at the time it was the largest mall, or at least in our imagination. Today there are 200 stores, 20 anchor stores, a 20-screen theater, a Bass Pro Shop with an eight-lane shooting range, It's got an NHL-sized hockey rink and a serpent safari reptile zoo. That is a mall. And from above, would you go figure, it looks like a dollar sign. (laughs) Ah. Well, Christy and I were 10 years old when that mall 
uh, went into business. And the adult, Trent and Christy, wouldn't bother. Well, one reason is the sheer vastness of the place. Imagine one of those mall maps. You would need one of those if you went to Gurney Mills, would you not? Before you're looking for anything else, you're looking for that map with a picture of the whole place and for that spot on the map which says, you are here. Well, when we hear such soaring and beautiful words of Christ, the one by whom and for whom all things were created and the one in whom all things in the universe hold together, you may wonder, where do I fit? Where am I on the map of Jesus' plans for the universe? Friends, today's passage in verse 21 begins, And you. And you. Oh, it's tempting to preach this part along with last week's part. But it needs its own sermon. And you've got to divide these texts some way. But it's meant to be heard after all of that. Almost as though the reader is wondering, where am I as I look at this vast sky of stars that Jesus has made and for which he has a purpose? You are here, this text says. Well, last week we considered the magnitude of the person and work of Jesus Christ preeminent in all things. And this week we see the magnitude of our salvation in Christ as complete as he is complete, as personal as Christ is preeminent, the full gospel for a full salvation, a salvation that misses nothing because our Savior is Christ, who is all in all. Our passage has three parts this morning, a part that points backward in verse 21, a part that points forward in verse 22, and a part that points at us in verse 23. With a curious condition. Three questions. What is the gospel done? What will the gospel do? And what must we do with the gospel? The first, what is the gospel done? Look at verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled, reconciled in his body by the flesh of his flesh by his death. The gospel has brought first reconciliation. The gospel has brought reconciliation. One of the great marketing inventions of the the last century is no doubt the before and after picture. You ever seen these? Look at the man's belly before. Look at the man's belly after. Look at how sad he was. Look at how out of shape he was. Now look at those abs. Look at how firm they are. Look at how happy he is. Look at how attractive he is. Or look at that woman's teeth, broken and yellow. Now look at that pearly smile. Look at her beautiful smile. And that doesn't just happen. Something has to happen to them. That's the point of a before and after picture. It isn't miracles that happened. It's something that happened. Well, here we get the before and after shots of ourselves spiritually. The before and after shot of our relationship with God. And what were we? Well, here's the picture. And it's captured 
with three descriptors. First, you were alienated. Alienated. This is what we are in relation to God outside of Christ. It's how we were all born. We often say sin separates us from God. And that is a true description. But as we think about the word, it's, it's really not enough. We can say it and it's true and you'll hear me say it and you can say it. But there is more that we need to say in a sense. We're separated right now. I'm up here and you're down there. And we're looking at each other, but we're all together and hopefully we're okay. Well, alienated is a word with more import. Alienated would mean that you and I aren't separate and facing one another, but separate and fighting one another. And to whom are we alienated or from whom are we alienated? Not even sure either of those work. God. We're alienated from God. In some broken relationships, it goes both ways. In fact, in most human relationships, surely it almost always goes both ways. Well, in this broken relationship, it only goes one way. And in this case, God isn't fighting us. We're fighting him. And if he seems to be on the attack, he is merely defending his name. That is what his wrath does. It is an appropriate response to our assault on the glory of his name. We were not always alienated from God. We were made in his image, but we alienated ourselves. We set ourselves against him. And so he says, and here's the second thing, you were hostile in mind. You were alienated and you were hostile in mind. Not the Lord. His mind was set to our good at creation. He gave us everything and everything as a context and an environment in which to enjoy fellowship with him. But we, humanity and Adam, wanted everything but his fellowship. We traded his glory for the glory of what he made. So when the Bible speaks of the mind, it speaks of more than just the thoughts, but not less. The mind is the center of our operation. It's our command center. It's central command. Central command in the human heart, by default, is orchestrated and organized against its perceived enemy, its maker. We come out of the cooker in trouble. We come out of the cooker making trouble. That's a bleak picture of our situation. And so third, no surprise, we were doing evil deeds, he says. Alienated, hostile in mind and doing evil deeds. The consequence of our alienation and our hostile thinking. Our hands reach for the things they should not reach for. And our feet take us to places that we should not go. And our mouths utter words that should never be spoken. And our eyes search for things and fix on things that we should not see and we should not linger on. You can fill in all of the blanks as you know your own heart. I can. And all of these evil deeds. Notice the inward and outward direction of this list. This description of the human problem is not merely external. In fact, it is weighted internal, rotten fruit, the the fruit of a rotten root. I want you to hear this in two other places. Just listen to Romans chapter 1, 
Listen for how the life of the mind, the internal life of the, the person relates to, to life itself and the living of life. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, from the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It is because of a darkness in the heart that follows from futile thinking, thoughts in the mind, a perception of God, a rejection of God, that impure lives and our lusts and our wicked deeds follow. And here it is in Ephesians chapter 4, a very similar passage. Listen to this. Now I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They're the practice of impurity after a long list of internal corruption, merely the fruit of a corrupt root. That's you and me apart from the grace of God. Corrupt all the way down. And that's the point. We are totally corrupt. Totally corrupt apart from God's grace. Not that all of us are as bad as we could be. We are all in every part of us bad. Our minds, our thinking, our desires, and our actions. Corrupt. And the corruption of our lives flows from the corruption that's inside, including the mind. We are a total wreck. We are a totaled wreck, if you will. Not worth fixing up. Costs too much. But that's the before. Praise God, the Bible doesn't stop there. The Bible's got plenty of that. Because it is straightforward with us about our sin. But the Bible and God in speaking to you never, ever stops there. That's who you once were if you're in Christ. Which is to say, if you are in Christ, that is not who you now are. Oh, you are not complete, as we will see. But that is in total not who you now are. So what happened? What kind of magical oil are we talking about that accounts for this before and after? What kind of miracle shake 
What kind of miracle shake are we talking about here? You once were these things, in verse 22, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Reconciled. We're made right with God. We're at peace with God. Our relationship is restored. Consider how personal this is. We have many different words that we use when we speak of salvation. Salvation might be the one we use most of the time. Uh, But if you do a scan across texts in our Bible that talk about salvation, if you will, we actually get lots of different words, including this one, which is really important. Reconciliation. What if you swapped that word out for a week or for a year? Every time you talked about your salvation, you talked about your reconciliation with God. How relational is that? Puts the accent on the relationship instead of what you're saved from, if you will. It's who you're saved to. Reconciliation. Salvation, not just a doctrine, but a personal experience of you and me with the person of God himself. Not a way of life, a change of life from a change of relationship with the giver of life. Not a religious rhythm of coming and going to church but a relationship with the God of the universe, reconciliation. But how does one reconcile the alienated, the hostile in mind, and the one doing evil deeds, the one whose command center is set against in war, its maker? How did this reconciliation happen? Have you ever been in a toxic relationship It's just impossible to imagine the thing getting fixed. And usually it goes both ways. In those relationships, often it's as impossible for you to imagine yourself coming around as it is them coming around. Have you ever been there? You know yourself and you don't want to come around. You're set against the person. And if they come around and confess their whole part, you might even be mad because you like them being wrong. (laughs) Well, in this case, our whole heart is set against God who has done no wrong. And we in sin don't want it set right. We don't want it set right. We like it toxic. Reconciliation doesn't just happen. And if it ever happens accidentally or just on its own in a relationship. It's fake reconciliation. It's pretend reconciliation. And some of us, some of you, have gotten really good at fake and pretend reconciliation. Let it blow over. Don't readdress the thing that you've said and confess your sin. Don't offer the forgiveness that's needed. Don't clear the person of guilt in the relationship. Just give it some time and pretend like everything's okay. Honestly, this is so tempting in marriage as we have habits of living and getting along. A bad night, a bad argument can be kind of easy just to let go because we think that if we wake up in a day or two, it'll be easier to return to the way that things were as if the argument never happened. But reconciliation doesn't just happen. And if it happens just on its own, it's fake. No one says, look at my new body. I just relaxed and lost 400 pounds. Just look at it. That's the secret. Just leaving it alone. No, something has to happen to make it happen. 
So how does one reconcile the alienated with God? How does one fix the hostile in mind and evil with a holy God? Here's how, verse 22. It's in his body of flesh and by his death that the reconciliation happens. No oil, no shake, a body of flesh and a death. And that doesn't sound like a normal solution to any problem. It sounds like some kind of mob boss solution. The problem got fixed when someone got killed. Well, I assure you there was a mob, but it was not that kind of solution. This is the body and the death of the very Son of God, Jesus Christ. The one who is preeminent in the universe before all things and in whom all things hold together. The one who created all things. The one to whom all things lead. The culmination of all things. The one in whom all things hold together. The one in whom all things cohere and make sense. Christ, this Christ condescended, came down to enter our creation, his creation. In order to save his people. He took on human flesh in order to die a human death. In order by his death to save, to reconcile humanity to himself. It is not that something happened to us. It is that someone happened to us. Jesus happened to you if you are reconciled to God. And it is God's grace and him alone that explains your relationship with God. Praise God for reconciliation. And this is why when we share our stories of salvation, we don't merely speak in terms of life and behavioral change or even in terms of my decision to trust Jesus, although we do decide to trust Jesus by God's grace. We speak of who we were deep down apart from God's grace, and what God did deep down to change us. We were hostile in mind toward God. Oh, we didn't even feel that way. That's because that's how normal it was for us to be set against him. I read a passage from Ephesians 4 a moment ago. Let me read it again and keep reading. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, he says. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardness of their heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But, what a key word, but. That is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him the truth that is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness and holiness of God in true righteousness and holiness." Praise God for total transformation from the inside out. A renewal of the mind. Christ, have you heard him? Have you learned him? Have you believed on him? Maybe this description of the human condition 
is the description of your life right now. Hostile against God in your being. And maybe you're being brought to a moment in your life where you're recognizing that that's exactly what it is. And maybe that's bothering you. If that's bothering you, that's a good thing. If you're realizing that you've been on the wrong team the whole time, that's a good thing. May you sing with us, Jesus paid it all. I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. For nothing good have I whereby thy grace to claim. I'll wash my garments white in the blood of Calvary's lamb. And our, our garments won't be just washed white, but he'll complete us. And when before the throne I stand in him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat. Jesus paid it all. Trust him to pay for it all. Pay for it all. Well, when this broken relationship went one way with God, God, the offended party, did not wait for us to seek reconciliation. You realize that? He doesn't meet us halfway. He doesn't split the bill with us. He pays it all. He came all the way in order to pay all of it. He transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. He came to us in the person of his beloved son to reconcile us. Now, maybe you're asking, why would God do all of this? Why would he do all of this? You ever ask that? It seems like a really bad idea for God to do this. If God is holy and righteous and majestic in splendor as the Bible describes him, what is he doing coming after me? If you know yourself, you would have hard, I had a hard time living with a roommate. Uh, sorry, I knew someone who had a hard time living with a roommate who was a slob. And um, I get it. So why would God choose to live with us, to join up with us forever? Fair enough. For many years, I have sought to recover various items from dumpsters. Anyone, anyone do that every now and then? Okay, so I think I got it in college. Chris and I went to college in Chicago downtown, and you have all these high rises, and all the college students come back, and you need a couch. Start walking up and down the street and find dumpsters with couches, a nice high rise, maybe a nice couch. In the first days of school, you'd see students carrying a couch down the street and like, <laughs> like little cockroaches cleaning up after the city. A number of times in our marriage, especially when we lived in condos or apartments, I would take the trash out to the dumpster and see a fine-looking lamp uh, or a fish tank, although I don't like fish. I'd take it back, and it didn't look as nice in the house. And I was sent right back to the dumpster with it anyways. <laughs> it looked okay sitting there. It looked valuable. But by the time I got in the house, I could see, and especially she could see. Well, this is not... This is not, with you and me, a reconciliation project of things that might be of some use with a little work. This is God reconciling the totally corrupt. Those in evil deeds with a hostile mind set against him, his enemies. And why would God do this? Well, there are many answers to that question. 
There are levels up into the sky in the elevator of that question, we might say. And the glory of God's grace might be the highest stop in that elevator. That for all eternity, God will show off how gracious he is as you and I are trophies of how far he goes and the kind of people he saves. Do you feel out of reach of the grace of God? What an occasion to show off God's grace in you. Your salvation is not about you. You aren't to be good enough to be saved. You're a sinner, and God shows off his grace in saving sinners. Salvation is about his glory and not yours. But there are other levels. So let's ask again, why does he reconcile us? Why does he come all the way? Why does he pay all the bill for that totaled wreck? Verse 22. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's why. That's the second thing in this gospel package. Perfection. And when before the throne I stand in him complete. Complete. Jesus died my soul to save. My lips will still repeat. And if reconciliation wasn't enough, we get this. We're not only reconciled to God in spite of our sin, we're reconciled one day to be without sin. And we may be tempted to think of salvation as a past event. When were you saved, we might ask one another. It's not a bad question. There is a point at which we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. I pray you're on the right side of that transfer, that moment. And when God transfers you and converts you, then you're reconciled to God. But there's a future presentation. There's a future angle. It'd be interesting to count up the, the times the Bible talks about that relative to the past. Salvation is a forward-looking thing, and not just forward in the sense that we're saved from wrath. But salvation in a forward completion. We're presented before him. It gets even more personal. We're reconciled to him and then we're presented before him. In fact, it's impossible to imagine anything more personal than this presentation. The closest thing we get is the intimacy of marriage. Listen to Paul's words in Ephesians 5. To husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church, present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she may be, listen, holy and without blemish. This is what Jesus wants. Reconciliation and perfection. Praise the Lord, he's not done with me. And praise the Lord, he's not done with you. I'm glad I'm not stuck with my desires and my motives and my thoughts and my deeds. And if you're in Christ, one day you will be presented to God, to Christ, without blemish, without wrinkle or any such thing. The language of the sacrificial system 
The Old Testament is littered with sacrifices. Sacrifices that meet certain specs. Sacrifices without blemish. Worthy of God. You will be above reproach without accusation. One day your status as without blame. Because you are not guilty now before God. Will be true in reality. Without sin. And this is why we're titling this sermon. The total package gospel. For it saves you. All the way from where you've come. And it completes you. For perfection into eternity. I looked at total package in the urban dictionary. Quote. A guy or girl who has the combination of both looks and personality, sense of humor, etc. It's rare to find someone that has the total package. Bill, why you hang so much with Andrea? Stephen, she got it all, man. She's the total package. (laughs) Got it all. Then there's the slogans. Total package, everything you need and more. There's more inside than you think. Business services, shipping, and screen printing. Become unstoppable with Lex Luger's total package workout. You're familiar with the language. Christ's salvation is the total package salvation. It doesn't stop short of anything. It's everything you need and more. Not a system of motivation. Not a track on which to run. Not a system of self-help. Not a mere community for encouragement in life. And not a program for a better you. This is you. Hostile in mind. Doing evil deeds. Alienated from God. Reconciled to him and presented to him without spot and without blemish. A salvation as big and as complete and as vast and as spectacular as Christ himself. So what is there left to do? Nothing. Christ does it all. And yet if you look on this total salvation package, there is a label. There's a label. There are two things in the package, reconciliation and perfection. What the gospel has done and what it will do, but there's a label and it says to the one who will receive and keep it. In other words, third, do not let it go. Reconciliation, perfection, and condition had a certain ring to it. But I didn't want the word condition to hang on the screen for another 10 or 15 minutes. It just doesn't have the force. Why is Paul saying this here? He is saying, this is what God has done and will do as long as you don't let it go. If you continue, listen carefully. Start at verse 21 again, listen to the whole thing. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Reconciliation, perfection, And now a condition, if, if, if you continue, if you continue in the good works that saved you, no, good works did not save you. 
You were lost in evil deeds. Continue in the faith. And what's the faith? It's the hope of the gospel, which he mentions. The gospel of the son who took on flesh and died for us. That gospel. If you let go of that good news, then it is not good news for you. If you shift from this hope, there is no hope apart from this hope for you. In other words, you will be reconciled and perfected if you continue in the faith. Or put negatively, to be as sharp as I can, as sharp as he is, if you do not continue in the faith, you will not be perfected. You don't receive what's in the package if you don't hold on to the package. If you decide you don't need the package, you don't get the package. If you're feeling the tension in this doctrine, that's a good thing. Because there's tension in every single Christian doctrine if you ponder it long enough. But this is more than a theological puzzle. You and I both know this doctrine is deeply personal. Maybe for you, it's a child who professed faith at a time and appeared to follow the Lord. And who has since rejected Christ and stands hostile against him. Maybe it's a spouse that you married and they professed Christ. They may, be even, they may even be with you here this morning, but they don't profess him anymore. It's emotions and it keeps the marriage happy. Maybe it's a best friend. Maybe it's someone that invited you to church. Maybe it's someone who shared Christ with you and led you in Bible study at one time. And they've since abandoned Christ. Have you seen a person apparently come to faith only years later to wander away, never return? And what do we make of that? Just this week, a singer-songwriter I've enjoyed for years, some of my favorite, some of the deeper theological reflections and song that I've sung are by this gentleman. Oh, he has wandered very far. As far as I can tell, released a song this week, mocking God to his face. Is he a Christian? He professed. He seemed to walk. Is he a Christian? What am I to think? What are we to say? What do we say to him? Well, we're not the first to deal with these questions. The Christians in the first century had these same kinds of things go on. And God has given us his word so that we might understand what's happening under the surface in those situations, those stories. There are three ways people resolve this tension. The first is to ignore it. To say if that person confessed Christ, they're safe in Christ. No life change or they've abandoned Christ, that's okay. They need not keep believing. We know they were sincere and so they're safe whether they know it or not. Whether they care now or not. And this has the apparent advantage of highlighting grace. God's grace when trusted will save all the way. We believe that. But this view also actually discounts the power of grace to actually save. Second, 
Some say you can be saved, but then forfeit salvation, lose your salvation. You're reconciled and you're going to be perfected if indeed you hold fast. So if you don't hold fast, you'll lose that status. But this seems to run against the grain of promises that we cannot be snatched out of Jesus' hands, that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, that God will be faithful to complete what he begins in us. And the whole idea that Jesus is a high priest whose death is enough to save us from beginning to end. And third, others will say that saving faith is continuing faith. In other words, continuing in the faith is proving that the faith is real. Saving faith keeps saying, Jesus is my only hope. Which means it is possible to confess Christ for a time and a kind of sincerity and not be safe for eternity, to not be converted, to be deceived. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Oh, they looked it. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This to me is the best way to put this together. Not every passage is going to try to solve every theological question or tension that is raised. And Paul doesn't in our passage of Colossians. But listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 2. In 1 John, he's speaking about those who go out, those who abandon the faith. He gives us tests for how we can know we're Christians. And then he says this, of some, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Which is to say, if they had not gone out, if they had not abandoned the faith, it would not have been plain that they were not of us. They went out from us, but they were not of us. And you couldn't tell until they were gone. That's the interpretive key. Paul doesn't say everything he might say in Colossians 1. John teases it out a bit here. We aren't the first to grapple with this question, friends. Friends, you have loved ones who have professed Christ and they have walked away and turned against him. We should not deceive ourselves or them with assurances of salvation that the Bible itself does not offer to those who turn from Christ. And at Colossae, there were those who entertained and were entertaining and teaching things that undermined the only gospel that saves. So we spent a bit of time trying to release some tension. I hope that I've convinced you that there is a, a biblical approach here, that saving faith, actual faith that saves, is faith that continues. If you continue, then you have the assurance of reconciliation and future perfection. But this is not here in this paragraph to sidetrack us with a theological tension, but to sanctify us on our way to heaven. It is more than a proof. It is a means. It is power on our way there. Paul says, if, so that you will commit yourself 
to regular, if you will, boring, week in, week out faithfulness. It's a call to regularity, steadfastness, not shifting, being stable. The highest spiritual life is itself consistent. It is regular. It is week on week, day on day, and predictable. This first hit me in high school, and I had a friend who was in and out of church. He'd grown up in church, and he'd be there a while, and then he'd be gone for a number of months, and then gone for a year, and then back and catching up with everybody. And remember, he was talking with our preaching pastor, and he asked, how's it going with you? And they chatted for a bit, and then my friend asked the pastor, how's it going with you? He goes, I'm still here. <laughs> I don't think he was trying to rub it in the guy's face. He's just saying, not much has changed. I've continued walking with the Lord. There is not much to catch you up on. Welcome back. Steadfast, unwavering, without shifting. What is God teaching you? Maybe an answer some days is to be steadfast, to be stable, to not shift. I'm believing the gospel this week like I did last week. And I'm a little closer to heaven for it. And related, Paul also says, if, so that we will know how to address the one who shifts from the hope of the gospel, who puts their hope in something else. We should not say things like, I know they're a Christian, but I wish they would live like one. Or he said a prayer, or he was sincere, I know he's a Christian. This is not right. It is not loving. It is not for their good, our church's good, or your spiritual good. It is a false assurance, a dangerous assurance. Paul says, if. So let us have the language of if be a part of our vocabulary. If you continue in the faith. Well, maybe you wonder. Maybe you're on the edge of the if. Maybe you're struggling with continuing. And you wonder, should I hang on to this? Is this gospel, this hope, the real thing. Friends, this is the real thing. Read of the preeminence of Christ in the text before. This is the one we hold on to. The gospel which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. It is not only a great big gospel of a great big Christ, but it is spreading throughout the whole world. And Paul says this here at the end as a kind of a reminder. It's a kind of divinely inspired exaggeration. All creation under heaven. It isn't everywhere at the moment, but as readers understand the point, the gospel is on the move. Look around. The man Jesus who died on the cross is being proclaimed as king throughout the whole world. Ever been pitched on an investment? This thing's going to go big. Get in now. Well, the gospel is already going big. It's being preached throughout the whole world. And how much more ought you and I be compelled by this gospel? 2,000 years later, we sit here under an hour of preaching a week because we believe these things. Look around you. There are men and women who believe this. Smarter than you. Wiser than you. Cooler than you. This is where the action is at. The gospel is being preached throughout the whole world and has landed in Greer. Jesus was big in verses 15 through 20. He is the one 
who is before all things and in whom all things hold together. And after this text, verse 21 through 23, he is bigger. The fullness of Jesus' glory is magnified in the vastness of his creation from one end of the universe to the other. And the fullness of Jesus' glory is magnified in the vastness of the chasm that he has closed between you and God with a cross on a hill in Jerusalem. So, hey, you, why do you hang with Jesus? Because he is the total package. He has got it all. And he has got me from beginning to end. Brothers and sisters, we were alienated and we have been reconciled and he is not done with us. So let us continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that we heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, he says, has become a minister. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this gospel. Paul gave thanks over us and he has prayed that we would be thankful. And here we are, marveling at Christ who holds all things together and marveling at the Christ who is preeminent and who has offered to us personal salvation, a complete salvation, a salvation from beginning to end. A salvation that takes us from as far away as we were and brings us all the way to a holy God to be presented without blame and holy before him. And Father, as we pray on these things and as we marvel in thankfulness, we ask for your grace to persevere us, to endure us in the faith that we profess. And Father, as we sit here, and perhaps there are some who are on the edge, wondering if they should continue, may they continue, stable and steadfast, not shifting. And Father, may I continue by your grace, powered with this vision of Jesus, stable and steadfast not shifting from the only hope that saves the gospel, which we've heard in Christ's name we pray. Amen.